the wilderness is just like the city in one aspect alone. That it's just as dangerous and around any corner, somebody or something could commit a horrendous crime against you. Welcome back to the swamp my friends and welcome if you're new. Today I'm going to be sharing some true and downright creepy wilderness crime horror stories that will freak you out tonight. Typically, I take these stories, I go more in depth, and I make full videos out of them. But, I wanted to take a few of these that didn't have as much detail and put them into a narration type video for you all. So hopefully you'll enjoy it. As always, be sure to slap up that like button, subscribe if you're new, and get ready for some creepy and downright strange wilderness crime horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. You know, Swamp Folk, it's a hard job out here arm wrestling and tickling the toes of homeless alligators. Sometimes I even get hurt while on the job. And for a long time, I had no one to turn to. I had no idea what to do or where to go. But that was until I found Morgan & Morgan. Morgan & Morgan is America's largest injury law firm. They have over 100 offices nationwide and more than 800 lawyers. With over $15 billion recovered for clients, Morgan & Morgan has a proven track record of fighting to get you full and fair compensation. Submitting a claim to Morgan & Morgan is more like ordering takeout than hiring a lawyer. It's super simple. With Morgan & Morgan, you can submit a claim without ever having to leave the couch. In 8 clicks or less, you can submit a claim to Morgan & Morgan. Now, Swamp Folk, I can't tell you what to do with your life, but if you're ever injured and you need the best of the best, you can check out Morgan & Morgan. Their fee is free unless they win. For more information, go to forthepeople.com slash swamped or dial pound law pound 529 from your cell phone. Again, that's forthepeople.com slash swamped or pound law pound 529 from your cell phone. This is a paid advertisement. Tillamook Forest Murder In the haunting depths of the Tillamook State Forest, a sinister murder unfolded, shrouding the tranquil woods in darkness. Brace yourself as we delve into the chilling details of this true crime tale. Warning, the story you're going to hear has some disturbing details. Viewer discretion is advised. It was a cold December morning when a Tillamook County Sheriff's Office deputy ventured into the forest, seeking to engage with long-term campers at a designated campsite, campsite number three to be exact. Little did they know, they were about to stumble upon a horrific scene. Amidst the towering trees, the deputy discovered the lifeless body of a 52-year-old man. His winter-clad figure lay motionless on the ground, blood staining his face, head and neck, a silver-colored Hyundai Santa Fe bearing an Oregon license plate loomed nearby, a silent witness to the heinous act. The signs of violence were unmistakable. The area surrounding the victim's body was littered with empty 38 special shell casings, a grim testament to a deadly encounter. But it didn't end there. The perpetrator, or perpetrators, had left no stone unturned. The victim's pockets had been rifled, his wallet and identification vanished. To add to the new mystery, the victim's trusty blue Toyota minivan was nowhere to be found. As the puzzle pieces began to fall into place, the gaze turned towards two women, 
residing at campsite number three. They lived in the same Hyundai Santa Fe that stood as a macabre centerpiece to the crime scene. The deputy's prior encounters with the women added an eerie layer to the investigation. Their car had experienced mechanical issues, and they refused when offered assistance that required separation. These encounters now took on a new significance. The abandoned Hyundai Santa Fe offered crucial clues. Personal belongings, belonging to Lisa Peasley, one of the women, were found inside. A stockpile of unspent 38 special ammunition in a bag nearby mirrored the shells discovered earlier. The breakthrough came when investigators unearthed the murder weapon concealed beneath the leaves, debris, and a small wagon. A firearm bearing one spent casing and one unspent casing matching the evidence found at the crime scene and inside the car was now in their possession. The focus shifted to bringing Alyssa Zippera Sturgill and Lisa Marie Peasley to justice. Days later in Hawthorne, Nevada, their stolen minivan was intercepted by law enforcement. Sturgill and Peasley were apprehended and caught red-handed in possession of the victim's stolen car. Initially charged with possessing a stolen vehicle, they exercised their right to remain silent, casting a chilling shadow over their true intentions. The Tillamook County Sheriff's Office spared no effort. Their detectives embarked on a journey to Nevada, armed with arrest warrants for murder, ready to commence an extradition process. The wheels of justice were set in motion. As we unravel this tragic tale, let us remember the victims whose life was abruptly vanquished. May our thoughts, sympathies, prayers, whatever it may be, accompany his grieving family and loved ones during their difficult time. This is just a glimpse into the Tillamook State Forest murder case. A stark reminder that evil can rear its nasty head even amidst serene landscapes. Stay vigilant and stay safe for danger may lurk where you least expect it. If you want to know more about this, you can look up more about Sturgill and Peasley's court proceedings and journey online. There are many articles that have followed that. Ocala National Forest Murder Mystery In the heart of Florida's National Forest lies a mysterious case that has confounded investigators for decades. On October 2nd, 1966, two young women, Nancy Leichner and Pam Nader, embarked on a seemingly innocent picnic adventure with the Aquaholic skin diving team. Little did they know, this would be their last known outing. Leichner and Nader joined the outing alongside Leichner's fiance and Nader's date, hoping for a day filled with laughter and outdoor enjoyment. The group gathered at the Alexander Springs Recreation Area in Altoona, Florida, between 2 and 3 p.m. They arrived ready to savor the beauty of nature. However, fate had something far more sinister for these unsuspecting women. As the day progressed, Leichner and Nader ventured into the nearby woods, following one of the nature trails. It was an excursion that would forever alter the course of their lives. Strangely, they left their purses, clothing, shoes, and even Leichner's eyeglasses on a picnic table. There were no indications of their intentions or hint of the danger ahead. 
When the women failed to return, a search covered an expanse of 15 square miles, yet, despite the dedicated efforts and search teams, no trace of Leichner or Nader was ever found. Experts quickly ruled out the possibility of drowning in the swampy area. Both women were skilled swimmers and had no plans to dip on that chilly day. The investigation took a perplexing turn and suspicion turned towards a notorious figure, Gerard John Schaefer Jr., a serial killer believed to be responsible for the deaths of numerous young women in Florida. Schaefer's dark legacy had already left a trail of victims and authorities began connecting him to Leichner and Nader's disappearances. While he was never charged in their case, investigators remained convinced of his involvement. A witness and a jailhouse confession further supported their belief. But, just to put this out there, Schaefer was notorious for admitting to things that he definitely did not do. Leichner, a graduate of Largo High School, and Nader, both Pinellas County, Florida residents, had only crossed paths once before their ill-fated picnic. Their cases, shrouded in mystery, remain unsolved to this day. In 2007, authorities made a disheartening announcement declaring the closure of the Leichner and Nader cases. They attributed the disappearances to the chilling actions of John Schaefer, who had been convicted of two murders and was suspected in the deaths of countless others. Schaefer did meet his demise in prison in 1995, preventing justice from being served in these particular cases. The families of the loved ones of Leichner and Nader continue to grapple with the haunting uncertainty surrounding their fate. Their stories serve as a chilling reminder of the dark depths humanity can reach. As time marches on, the quest for answers persists, fueled by the hope that the truth behind the mysterious disappearance will finally come to light one day. The Disappearance of Roger Sawyer one month after the mysterious disappearance of Roger Sawyer during a camping trip in Everglades National Park, his family remains hopeful that he will be found safe. However, as they return to their homes on the West Coast without any clues about his whereabouts, they are left with the lingering questions about the lack of media involvement in the search efforts. Roger Sawyer, a 67-year-old retired Oregon butcher, was an experienced outdoorsman, he vanished without a trace on March 5th while camping with his family in the Flamingo Campground area at Everglades National Park. The camping trip culminated in a cross-country journey in their motorhome. Sawyer's daughter-in-law, Janice Williams, shared details of their journey recounting their adventures exploring the Florida Keys. According to Williams, while some family members visited the visitor center, Sawyer and his wife Paula remained at the campground. As darkness fell and people started to return to the motorhome, Sawyer was notably absent. Concerned, the family alerted park officials and a search was immediately launched with the assistance of Miami-Dade Fire Rescue. Despite extensive search efforts, which included scouring the water, beach, and every possible location, no trace of Sawyer was found. Williams expressed the family's confusion and frustration over the lack of progress in finding him. No shoes, no hat, or personal belonging was discovered, leaving them puzzled about how a man in good health, with no signs of dementia, and a background in outdoor survival, could vanish without a trace within a national park. Now, 
you listening to the Swamp Dweller channel know that that is definitely not out of the norm here. The initial response from the National Park Service and Miami-Dade Fire Rescue included sharing essential information with the media. However, as the search continued, the flow of information dwindled. It was initially reported that the family did not want to speak to reporters or provide a photo of Sawyer for some reason. Still, the family does deny this claim, later confirmed by a park spokesperson. In an interview with CBS Miami, Williams revealed the decision to withhold a photo of Sawyer from the media was made by the incident team managing the search, as they wanted to prioritize dedicating manpower to search efforts. Williams clarified that the family was willing to cooperate with the media and believed their involvement could have aided in locating Sawyer. She expressed disappointment that the media attention they had hoped for did not materialize. The search, managed solely by a dedicated incident team from the U.S. Park Service, continued for approximately 10 days but yielded no results. Eventually, the family had no choice but to return home, still without any answers about what happened to Sawyer. Williams expressed gratitude for the efforts of the Park Service and other agencies involved in the search, acknowledging their exhaustive coverage of every inch of the park. However, as Sawyer remains missing, the family began to entertain the unsettling possibility that he might have been taken out of the park. This idea, not previously considered by the searchers, raised questions about the potential benefit of making a photograph of Sawyer public. Such visibility aided search efforts if he had ended up closer to civilization. Nevertheless, the search coordinators made no official request for immediate assistance. Linda Fryer, the public information officer for Everglades National Park, acknowledged that the way information was disseminated during the search is now being reviewed by the Park Service. The family is left clinging to hope considering offering a reward for any information that could lead to resolving Sawyer's mysterious disappearance will help. Paula Sawyer Rawls, Sawyer's daughter, who traveled to South Florida to assist in the search, had since returned home, sharing her anguish on CBSMiami.com, saying, Every passing day intensifies her longing for her father and her desperate wish to have conversations with him again. The void left by his disappearance creates a deep emotional wound that can only begin to heal once they have closure and know what happened to him. As Sawyer's whereabouts remain unknown, friends and strangers across the nation continue expressing their support, well wishes, and encouragement. The family remains hopeful that their search will eventually yield answers, ending the agonizing uncertainty they face. As always, I'll be taking you through a light-hearted journey on a not very light topic, but first I do want to begin on a very serious note that's close to my heart, and hopefully yours as well. Most of you have probably seen the Netflix documentary series Tiger King, so you may already be aware that our country has a tendency to domesticate, and I use that term very loosely, exotic animals such as tigers and monkeys. This is a huge problem unto itself, but there's an even bigger problem behind it. Yes, many of these animals are the result of breeding, but there are countless more being brought in by poachers and their journey is unspeakably cruel. Sadly, just as many are slaughtered for their hides and horns, but animals aren't the only victims of poaching. Statistics show, on average, two park rangers are killed by poachers each week worldwide, but some experts believe that the number may be much higher. 
Of course, that's not including other park personnel or civilians. Each year, that totals over 100 human deaths on top of an already heinous crime. Yet, there is so little awareness surrounding the issue. The men and women losing their lives while trying to protect these animals deserve our recognition and gratitude. While yes, we may have a few jokes bordering on inappropriate throughout today's video, please don't lose sight of the real message. Hungry Hungry Komodo Dragon This first story is an exotic one. We're starting off in Rincha Island in Indonesia, Komodo National Park to be exact. According to the Canberra Times, Komodo dragons have lived on the islands of Indonesia, completely isolated from predators for about a million years. At the time of this article in 2021, there were an estimated 5,000 dragons living in the park. They most commonly eat deer, buffalo, goats, and birds. Sometimes they'll eat their prey whole, while other times they'll poison it with a venomous bite and stalk their dinner until it dies, even if that takes three weeks' time. In 2009, a ranger named Mian arrived at his office located inside a small wooden building in the main camp. Nothing seemed out of ordinary until he sat at his desk and happened to look down to see a Komodo dragon next to his leg. Mian would later learn a cleaner had left the door open, allowing the Komodo to enter in search of food. Now it seemed to find some. To make matters even more terrifying, the ranger was only wearing sandals. His feet were his only weapon and they were completely unprotected. He knew if he didn't get his leg away, the dragon would bite it and swallow. Very carefully, he tried to pull his leg back, but the dragon followed. And Mian knew he was in trouble when its tail moved to strike from the other side. He pulled his leg back too fast and became trapped beneath the desk. That's when the Komodo clamped down and refused to let go. Its teeth were ripping into Mian's flesh. Thinking fast, he managed to pin the beast down slightly by putting his free foot onto its neck. Using his free hand, he was miraculously able to pull the animal's mouth open, thereby freeing his leg, but his hand was now also bitten during the struggle. All the while, Mian was shouting for help and other rangers rushed to his aid, but to their horror, more Komodo dragons were also close behind. Lured by the smell of blood, some rangers tried to keep the new arrivals under control while two others hurried to assist Mian with the Komodo inside. These creatures can seem docile most of the time, but they're actually merely conserving energy. They're actually quite fast when attacking. In normal situations, park staff would simply use a stick to push the dragon aside or flee. Any further engagement would simply be unthinkable. Mian estimated there were seven additional dragons waiting when he finally emerged from the building. One friend pushed them away with the stick while another helped him awaiting transportation. After a short boat ride, Mian was taken to a hospital on Flores Island before being flown to Bali where he received six hours of emergency medical treatment. He was required to stay in Bali for an additional week before returning to Flores Island for six months of recovery. Eventually, he also resumed his job at the Komodo National Park, though he only does desk duty an understandable choice if not a slightly ironic decision. You know, considering how it actually happened. The dragon that bit him was still living as of July 2021, and though Mian was unable to tell it apart from the others, he does believe its smaller size was the only reason he's still alive today. Though he suffers from terrible nightmares and doesn't enjoy reliving the incident, he hopes that sharing his story will help spread awareness to the dangers of Komodo dragons. Bull Elk Bulldozer 
Next up we have one of our favorite locations, Yellowstone National Park, where the bull elk use cars for fighting practice. Usually, when we hear of an animal attack in a national park, we can't help but to wonder what role the victim played. Did they get within selfie range of a moose? Did they try to hand feed a bear? You never know what you're going to get, but sometimes wild animals are just gonna be wild animals. On this occasion, a bull elk made its way into a Yellowstone National Park parking lot, and, well, here's what an eyewitness said in a Whiskey Riff interview. This happened on September 10th, 2021, when my family and I took a vacation to Yellowstone National Park. We were on our way back to the Airbnb when we saw a lot of park rangers trying to keep people at a certain distance. So I drove back around and parked right in front of the elk. It is during the rutting season, so the males were hyper-aggressive. He lunged at two cars before ramming into the ranger's vehicle. In the video, the elk is clearly unimpressed as it scans its surroundings, and one car can be seen backing away before it's far too late. But then the animal launches itself toward in a full charge, colliding directly into the side of a park ranger's vehicle. Rutting season is no joke, and this was at its peak. Typically, the season lasts from September to October, but sometimes it can begin as early as August. Battling over mates is a common occurrence among North American bull elk, and sometimes they're even fatal. In this overly aggressive state, anything can be seen as a challenger, be it animal, human, or even a car. Honestly, we're lucky it was only a vehicle and not a person. It could easily have gone the other way. Just let this be a lesson to you. If you plan to visit Yellowstone, try to make sure it's not during rutting season. Grizzly Mama Next up, we have a good old-fashioned bear attack. And no, one animal's attack video is complete without at least one, right? Seriously, it's the law. There's no lack of potential encounters, either. In fact, you may very well be seeing a dedicated bear attack episode in the future, but for now, I want to tell you about Canadian Park Ranger, Jordan Carberry. In July 2018, Jordan was 50 years old, living in Bella Coola, British Columbia, when he found himself in a fight for his life. He was outside of his home early on a Tuesday morning when he noticed a couple of bear cubs sitting in a cherry tree and their mother, who was nearby. He had just taken a picture of the mother when a branch snapped, one of the cubs came crashing to the ground, the fall triggered the overprotective mother, and she charged directly at Carberry. A bear will usually display certain signs before going on the attack, but there was no lip smacking or loud huffs to give warning in this case. Also, since grizzly bears can run up to an astonishing 35 miles per hour, Jordan believed he was done for. The New York Post quotes the ranger as saying, She had her eyes locked on me, and she was coming for me. I instantly turned and tried to get back into the house. All of a sudden, I just got tackled from behind and was sent flying. It felt like two football players tackling me at the same time. The grizzly bear was suddenly on top of Jordan, wrapping her jaws around his head and lifting him with her mouth. That's when part of his ear and part of his scalp tore free and he fell to the ground. But Mama Bear wasn't quite finished. She then lifted him by his thigh and dropped him a few more times for good measure. Carberry loved bears before this incident, and as a park ranger, he had recently taken a defensive training class where he learned what to do during such an occasion. He estimates landing at least three kicks to the bear's face before finally regaining his feet and taking a few swings. He was aiming for her snout, but he missed each attempt. Jordan later stated, She was like a prize boxer. She was so fast. Though he wasn't able to land a punch, he did gain enough distance from the bear to run the 40 feet back to his house. Don't forget this guy had been lifted by his thigh and dropped multiple times. 
That's the power of adrenaline for you. Some sources state he didn't have cell reception, while others state he lost his phone in the scuffle itself. But regardless of why he couldn't call for help, Carberry was forced to drive himself on a 10-minute trip to the hospital. After grabbing his keys, he had to make it to his vehicle while the bear was still just outside. When he made a run for it, the grizzly did charge at him again, but thankfully she didn't commit. During the drive, Jordan continuously repeated, Don't pass out. Don't pass out. You guys remember the part about a scalp tearing, right? This wasn't even his main concern. He caught a glimpse of his body form in the mirror and in his own words, I was mostly concerned with my abdomen because I thought she had split me open. I thought my guts were hanging out. Upon arrival, he was transferred to Vancouver General Hospital where he underwent surgery for umbilical hernias. That's when the intestine protrudes through the muscle at the belly button. His other injuries included a severed ear, a torn scalp, and several puncture wounds from the bear's canines. You can actually view pictures on American Shooting Journal, but YouTube will get upset if I include them here. So, you can find a link down in the description if you are interested. By all accounts, he seems to have handled the entire trauma like a champ, though. After a two-week recovery in the hospital, where he constantly kept the doctors and nurses laughing, he was finally able to return home. He felt incredibly lucky to be alive and made lighthearted jokes on Facebook such as, Good thing I have such a thick skull. A CBC article mentions volunteers picked the fruit from Carberry's trees to make it safer. While there, they collected a video revealing up to eight bears were frequenting the ranger's yard. The Conservation Office Service decided to not euthanize the bear because she was merely protecting her cubs and hasn't posed any other public safety threats. This was a decision Carberry wholeheartedly agreed with, stating, It was me dropping my guard in grizzly country, which you can never do. I did it because I was so close to my house, and I learned a big lesson. Chimps Gone Wild Our number four slot takes us to the Jane Goodall Institute Chimpanzee Eden in South Africa. In June of 2012, Ranger Andrew Oberle, 26 years old, was leading a tour when two chimpanzees suddenly grabbed his feet and pulled him beneath a fence. Andrew was savagely mauled and dragged for nearly a kilometer into their enclosure. The sanctuary's director, Eugene Cousins, fired a shot into the air, scaring the animals back into their enclosure. Chimp Eden effectively went into lockdown while investigation took place to determine if the animals would be destroyed. The sanctuary's official statement read, Chimpanzees are wild animals and are defensive of their territories. Any interaction between humans and wild animals can be dangerous. The chimpanzees at Chimp Eden have suffered horrible injuries and abuse from humans and therefore have been treated with caution. After undergoing surgery, Andrew remained in critical condition at Nail Spruit Hospital, where he was treated for the lost part of an ear, parts of his fingers, and at the time of his attack, he was studying for his master's degree in anthropology and primatology at the University of Texas in San Antonio. The executive director of the institute, David Davos Usthusian, spoke with the Toronto Star to confirm Andrew's injuries were quite extensive and that this was the first incident of its kind since the park's opening in 2006. Killer Elephant As always, I've saved the wildest story for last. In a Thailand, e in an eastern province in Thailand, 
Last September, two men were killed over a three-day period by a rogue elephant. I just want to add a quick disclaimer that I'm probably going to accidentally pronounce the names and villages wrong. I know it, you know it, let's not make a thing of it, okay? For around five months, an elephant from the top Lawn National Park was raiding villages and farms for food in Tambon Kang Sidu. According to the Bangkok Post, it was happening almost daily and, as one would imagine, the damage was massive and widespread. Finally, after two people were seriously injured, a park ranger by the name of Arts Hit Fieng Wam led volunteers into an attempt to drive the elephant away. On a Sunday, September 11th, 2022, the village chief, Soraya Uterapas, the park ranger, and other volunteers rushed to confront the elephant. The ranger attempted to scare the beast away with firecrackers, but it retaliated, and the ranger was unable to move away in time. As a result, he was stomped into the ground until his body was basically half-buried, gravely wounded, as he rushed to Nadi Hospital, where he was later pronounced dead. Also, I do want to note that while the Bangkok Post refers to this incident as a single elephant, other articles do state that it was a herd of elephants. Of course, it's always possible we're losing something in translation, but just a quick FYI before we move on to the second incident. Just two days later, on the 13th, a group of rangers from Klong Kura Wai Wildlife Sanctuary were trying to clear out six elephants at the Longan Plantation in eastern Shanthaburi, and 42-year-old park ranger Somfob Shri Nam was among the group. The reports state that the ranger didn't realize one of the elephants stood only a mere 30 meters away. When the animal noticed him, he was taken off guard and unable to escape. His body was later transferred to Pong Namron District Hospital to undergo an autopsy. I don't understand why an autopsy was necessary, but Thai PBS World seems confident that that's how it's happened. Shortly after these incidents, Fadet Lithong, director of the Wildlife Conservation Office, felt the park rangers were in desperate need of modern equipment and was able to procure 30 night vision binoculars to kickstart the process. He also wished to stress that only some elephants pose a threat to humans, the majority are not aggressive. Thanks for listening to these creepy and downright strange wilderness crimes and strange things that just happened in the wilderness in general. I can't imagine being mauled by a bear, and I definitely can't imagine going missing. I mean, I guess I can't imagine it because I'd be missing. But anyways, thank you guys as always for supporting the swamp the way you do. Without you guys, I couldn't do this on a daily basis. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to hit that like button with all your might as it helps me out a ton. The more likes this episode gets, the more YouTube promotes it, and that's incredibly helpful. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Be sure to slap that subscribe button, turn on notifications so you don't miss a new episode as I upload them multiple times a week. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode of your own, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I'm always looking for brand new, true scary stories to share with everyone here in the swamp. If you're on the go, but you don't have YouTube Premium, but you still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and pretty much anywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. 
it's absolutely free to do so, and it always will be. If you want to support The Swamp, be sure to throw a comment down letting me know what story was your favorite tonight. Today's code word is Orange Crown. The funniest comment that uses Orange Crown will be pinned at the top per usual. I love seeing your comments. They always make me laugh, and it's cool to see everybody confused when they don't know what's going on. Thank you guys so much. I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode.